Welcome to Aussie Ambitions Podcast, where we meet with everyday Aussies that are pushing ahead with their goals and ambitions in life. Join your host, Scott Robert Springer, to explore the future of entrepreneurship, work-life balance, and reaching beyond your comfort zone. So stay tuned for some tips on living life the Aussie way. All right, guys, welcome back to the Aussie Ambitions Podcast. I'm here with a guest, which I'm very appreciative of his time. Um, We're going to learn about the world of architecture a little bit and also just what life is like here in Australia um, with that profession and maybe how we got there. So I just wanted to introduce our guest today. It's Nick Mittens. How are you doing, doing, Mick? Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Excellent. Um, So Nick is a director and owner of uh, an architectural studio here on the Gold Coast. And um, we just had him in for a bit of a chat around things that are happening in his life, you know, right now on Gold Coast. We're heading into 2021. And um, he actually works fairly close to where our studio is here. And I think the world of architecture is one of those areas where, you know, on the theme of ambitions and what people are working on, uh, I feel like people don't necessarily know exactly what goes on in that world. So um, I just wanted to introduce you, Nick, and maybe tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, and thank you very much for for having me here. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, We were just talking about before how, it was an interesting thing. We, you got in contact with us and uh, the title of the podcast was Aussie Ambitions. And that in itself means so many different things to me. Um, I had an ambition to become an Aussie at one point. I was actually born in, in Denmark, but I've lived in many places around the world. I, I came here from uh, about 11 years living in London. Um, and it was an ambition of mine for a very long time to become an Aussie. Uh, this is the third time that I live here, I lived here back in 2000. Then later on, when I finished uni, I went back, lived in Sydney for a couple of years, had to leave because of all the visa rules, etc. Ended up in London, but for 11 years had the ambition of becoming an Aussie. And uh, I managed to finally go through with that in 2015 and return and um, you know become part of the Triple H Architects here on the Gold Coast. Oh, wow. All right. Well, that that's actually an extra level of I guess incorporating into how you ended up here. Obviously, um, I can volunteer as well that I I did move outside the country into Australia about 10, 10 12 years ago now, and uh, and I agree. I think that's something yeah. that maybe a lot of people would be curious about. Um, so if you're listening at home and you're interested about how uh, people that have been born and raised outside the country come to establish in Australia, I would say it's it's not that easy. It's not just wide open borders. I don't know what was your experience. Yeah, no, it's certainly not easy depending on, I suppose, your level of qualification, your type of job. There are different ways in. Um, as I said, this, this is my third time living here. This this one's forever, I think. Um, that's certainly the ambition. Um, but depending on the stage of your life, there are many, there's a multitude of ways in. Uh, for me, this the first time I think I was here on a working holiday visa, Um and did the, you know, travelling around, the backpacking and, you know, the hitch- I actually hitchhiked around Australia with a surfboard. Not the easiest thing to do, but um, you get little rides at a time. Uh, the second time I came back as a graduate um, and managed to kind of work my way through various companies in Sydney. But the visa didn't have the staying power, if you, if you want to call it that, and I ended up, ended up having to leave. Um, and then I've come back as a permanent resident. Um, so there are, you know, there's many ways of, of coming to Australia. There's, and there's certainly many ways to stay. We recently sponsored a, uh, a chap from Colombia and his partner. 
um, to stay here and get permanent residency. Wow. Um, that's, uh, I like the way we started on this, and I think this, this obviously, um, hopefully people can learn, f learn from it and, and just uh, maybe understand what it's like and maybe why people, obviously it's a nice country to live in and there's uh, a whole way of life here and even that's a whole other conversation. But the, the idea of um, getting the visas and things like that, so when you were to, when you said it, the time was up, is it just because the you were allo allotted a certain amount of time and did someone come after you or is just self-managed? Uh, uh, let's call it self-managed. Uh, no, my time on the visa was up. I actually ended up getting sponsored by my employer in Sydney at the time, but there was a girl 17,000 kilometres away and I made some decisions that you do when you're a young man and, uh, you know, yeah. went for that instead of, um, you know, I suppose a different ambition than, uh, than a professional one. Um, that didn't work out and I ended up in London and... Once I was there, I always kept meeting Aussies and I always said to myself, look, ultimately, that's where I'm going to end up. I mean, try living in London when you're a surfer. Uh, you know, it's four hours at best in a car to get to any kind of decent waves and I'd do that pretty much every weekend when I was there. I always had the thought, like, no, at some point, got to be, got to get back to Australia. Wow. And so is surfing something that you do on the daily now or where, have, is, where have, does that fit? I have two kids. <laughs> I have two boys and, you know, they get to surf. Um, I don't get to surf that often now. It's okay. Yeah. I'm sure I'll get back to it. Yeah. I, one of my business partners is in the early 60s and, you know, he's at a time of his life where he can surf whatever he wants and that's, uh, you know, that's probably what will happen. Okay. So it's definitely yeah. a time... Uh, allotment thing you've got. yeah but you know surfing is something uh, I think for some people they need to do it every day and like I said it's like a drug they need to get on their board every day to me it's just as much it's a place where I go and I empty out my brain I go in the water I just forget everything else um, and I think it's it's a great like being in the surf is a great picture for me of what Australia is um, you meet all walks of life out there everyone can talk everyone's at the same level you know, the, the ocean's a great leveller. doesn't matter what you do, what you've achieved. That wave, that rogue set comes in, it just rolls you. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are or whatever else. Um, so it's a great leveller. And, and I actually think it's a good picture of what Australia is, to me at least. It's quite an egalitarian place. It affords people opportunities. But it's also a place where, um, you know, coming from London... You would never see. I'm just going to pick two, um, two types. Of, you'd never see a plumber and a solicitor out for lunch together. Okay. Uh, if you saw them together, you'd have no doubt who was who. And even if they open their mouth, they don't even. They hardly speak the same language. In Australia, you wouldn't like. You wouldn't pick it. Two guys in boardies, walking down a beach. You don't know who's who. And I find that amazing. I love that. I wonder. Just as an open question to the people listening and. Uh uh, perhaps watching is interesting to see the awareness of that kind of thing. I think there's a certain stereotype of Aussie life and an Aussie bloke or Sheila or, you know, however yeah, you want to yeah. call it out and the wildlife and all that. But, um, yeah, this is really what we wanted to do is just get get some real context. And, of course, people come here and visit because that's the – it is a great country to visit and live uh, in. But um, is, do you think that's a cultural thing? Is that coming from some structure that – whether it's a government or a historical thing. I love speculating and I, and, and I love kind of making up my own stories about why things are the way they are. Um, I think to some degree that there was a monoculture here that was um, 
founded around really hard work and very tough living conditions. So if you didn't stick together, if you didn't help each other, if you weren't friends, if you couldn't say hello to each other, then you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't hack it. Um, and I still think, you know, it's still there. Like even when I lived in Sydney for a couple of years, you'd get on a busy bus in rush hour in the morning to go to work and the girl sitting next to you opens her purse and she goes, oh, do you want gum? Like it ju- that doesn't happen in London. No one goes out of their way to talk to each other. Like I'll go for a walk in the morning or whatever. I'll say hello to everyone. Everyone says hello back. No one looks down. No one looks away. You know, people engage and you know, I think a lot of Aussies take pride in that sense of community and I think the Gold Coast is a great place for that. It's a very kind of family-oriented place to live um, where a lot of people um, are here to kind of strike a balance between family life, um, lifestyle, if you want to call it, um, you know, pursuits of outdoor living um, and outdoor um, pursuits like surfing, for, ex- for example, and their work. And a lot of people move here, start businesses to find that balance so you know they can work and do the things that they love to do. But there's a lot of Aussies, like you go for a barbecue and you ask someone, so what do you do? And they go, ah, oh, I love spearfishing. He, he didn't answer, what is, what is my profession? You know, he didn't say I'm a dentist or I'm a bricklayer. He told you what he loves doing. And I think that's a great thing about Australia. And, you know, the Gold Coast is a regional city, but it's got a real international flavour, like, you know, far beyond its size, I think, really, um, because people come here from all over because it's got a, you know, the beaches, et cetera. It's got a unique draw. And, you know, sitting here with a Canadian, and a Danish person, not sure where Dylan's from. Um, an Aussie, there you go. So it's about right, yeah. two to one. Yeah. Um, and I love that in Australia. But, but I think what Australia does offer is, a place where people can come and they can fit in. I don't feel like I need to always explain my backstory, where I'm from. I can, I wasn't born here, but I can be an Aussie just like anyone else can be an Aussie, and, I, and I'm accepted as as that. Um, That's uh, I actually wouldn't. It's 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 interesting to see how to follow where someone's from or their their origins. Like I wouldn't have necessarily known that you had a. You were born overseas, or and you migrated. Um, there's a level of, I guess, the, the language and the culture. Do you feel like? Uh, do you identify as as an Australian, having settled here? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, and um, and then I almost feel like the stories you're sharing are in contrast to some other locations. So if someone was born and raised here, they may not know the context of London or the context yeah. of America and so on. Yeah. Um, do you think that works for you or against you? I like, think I think you can make it work for you. Um, whether it sets you apart, maybe. Um, I think most people have experienced the feeling of travelling, whether they go somewhere and settle or whether they're just travelling. But I think you'll recognise that feeling of travelling and you feel slightly special when you're travelling because you're there, you're viewing that place from a slightly different platform, you're travelling through, you're away from your origins or you know, even when you're travelling, you're away from your everyday life so you can kind of reinvent yourself a little bit. But, you know, this is – I've lived in four different continents and I think every time you go somewhere, you get an opportunity to kind of slightly reinvent yourself, keep the good things but leave other things behind. And, oh, you know, I can be Aussie Nick here and it's probably slightly different to who I was when I lived in London, for example, or when I lived in Istanbul or when I lived in Africa. Um, 
or where I was from in Denmark. You know, you're allowed maybe to live in a different way, to express yourself in a different way. Um, yeah, certainly, it, London's an interesting place because it's also very multicultural and melting pot, mm. just like Australia as a country is. But I remember after about eight or nine years in London, I realised something that I've been thinking a lot about and I've been pondering. I realised that in my workplace, there's about 70 of us, um, there were sort of groups of friends and groups of people that would hang out and do stuff outside of work. And it took me about eight or nine years to realise that all my friends at work were all foreigners. And the British people had their own group. And it was hard to penetrate. The Brits are not, you know, there's an island nation. They're not quite like the other Europeans. Um, I would hang out with the Spanish people, the South Americans, the Italians. Um, and, it, yeah, Australia isn't really like that to me. It's very much open. And it's a, you know, it, it levels you all the time. Um, Oh, I think that's a good reminder. We spoke about that earlier about the leveling and the, um, I guess, on the theme of ambitions, we, we've we brought that up a few times and it's nice to hear that there's a natural connection, I think, with a lot of the um, the other guests that are coming through. So the ambition isn't necessarily a, a career level. Um, I mean, career, it gets often mixed with ambition and, you know, what are you aspiring to and so on. But the, the happiness being the end goal or the mm. maybe the next skill that you're going to learn being that's I aspire to that and and all this kind of stuff. I think the I suppose um, one of those I don't know if it's a fake meme or whatever, but you know one of those things that you come across on social media from time to time is the story of John Lennon, who who did a an essay I think um, in school, and they're asked to you know to basically detail what what's your ambition in life and and. How I how I know the story goes. John Lennon wrote to his teacher, "You know, I want to be happy," and that was it, full stop. And the teacher said, "I think you've misunderstood the question." And later on, John Lennon then said, "Well, I actually think now that he'd misunderstood life." Interesting. Hey? I, I don't know if John Lennon ever did that, but you know exactly. You know, people like to associate famous people with something they've thought up rather than say it themselves because they think you know, they'll be listened to more. But I quite like that story. You know, it's not really. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm a hugely ambitious person in terms of my professional life. Um, I think as an architect, you've got an opportunity to you know to kind of influence the world and the cities that you're in, and to a degree that. Not many other professions can, uh, and I'm ambitious about that because I've, I really, I'm passionate about it. But to me, like, I'm equally ambitious about being able to spend time with my two boys, you know, with my wife, and you know, with my friends and family, um, and to do other things that make me happy and make me a balanced person. And you know, Australia certainly great for that. I think there's a kind of a, there's a there's an inbuilt understanding here that those things are also important. Mm. Um, that's um, that's really helpful to hear for again for people that are curious about just the fabric of society and the mix of things I think and I, I can definitely support that um, uh, I feel like the balance I guess the origins of this podcast is really to highlight that the way of life here does generally celebrate balance and um, it's not people would actually look down on you if you worked a super, super long day without any balance, even mm. though in some of the major cities it's, it tends to get that international influence, the New York style and the London style, and Canada's got Toronto, and you earn your stripes by putting the long hours and so on. But here, 
it almost is it would almost be looked at as perhaps an antisocial thing. Mm. I don't know if you've seen I mean, that in your industry. Two, two, hour, uh, two weeks of holiday a year in America. I, I don't holiday see many Aussies lasting the, yeah, <laughs> the, the long run. And yeah. Let's spell that out for people. So that's that's what I grew up with. It's two two years or two, two weeks of uh, annual leave. They'd call it like basically time off. Yeah. Two weeks a year, and then here the de- the minimum is four weeks. Four if weeks I got that yeah. right. Yeah. And then if you're but most you know, most workplaces, our workplaces certainly like that. Um, we'll just listen to the individual. So if you want more holidays, we can we can make that work. Um, and I think you know not just in Australia. I suppose that's worldwide phenomenon now. Most employers are becoming more and more alert to the fact that people have other ambitions than just being there. You know, um, and those ambitions may not necessarily be professional. There, there could be many other things, and you know, they want to be able to find that time to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see why people should sit on their bum from nine to uh, from nine to five every day and five days a week. Yeah, and then go on four weeks of holiday, and you know, there's so many other ways to do it. Yeah, I think a lot of people mix their, um, you know their life up a bit more mm. and do more holidays. Uh, we certainly, do, you know, promote flexible working in our workplace and I think people just much happier stick around for a lot longer if they can, uh, if they know that we value their, you know, their life and their happiness and their families more than just the output they can give us. I think that's very healthy thinking and uh, it'd be interesting to see how others you know, view that obviously there's just a world of transformation out there and there's uh, sort of the gig economy and, you know, oh, having, terrible. A, having a full-time job is sort of, you know, I'm so, not so sure yeah, these days. Yeah. Look, I, I get that some people are able to use the, let's call it the gig economy to kind of shape their lives and do other things and, you know, to work whenever they want. But I think there's also a bad, bad side of that gig economy, which is that it's actually forced upon you know, a large portion of a generation that's coming into their working life now by people that maybe aren't great employers. Um, and it's not just private enterprise. I mean, state, government do it as well. Uh, I find it quite odd sometimes that you're, you know, as, a, as an employer, you, you know, you're scrutinised in how you deal with your employees, like all the way down to what you're allowed to talk to them about. Um, whereas, you know, for me, I, I just try and be a good person, uh, you know, as much as I can. And so I go, oh, why can't I ask these questions? Why can't I engage on these subjects? Why can't I? Because all I'm trying to do is get a basis for me to understand my employees so that I know how I can get them to be as happy as I can so that they will produce great work. Um, but quite often you're not allowed to ask questions, you're not allowed to engage with their private life. And, and, and then at the same time you see state government keeping people in you know, gig economy contract work for a decade before they offer them a, a permanent position. I, f- I find that strange. That's helpful. Anyway, to... I'm not going to politicise here. No, but it's uh, it's painting the pictures for people that uh, would not necessarily know that you know Australia has a certain uh, framework and that yep they're they're quite clear on what the employee rights are and how, protection and there's lots of different uh, yeah. And it, I, one actually overall question I had about just how much. How, how much change you may have seen in, in the country and which, what direction we're headed in. But um, let's just say, I'll offer up my observation that things change fairly quickly in, in things like city development. I see buildings mm. go up and regulation doesn't yeah. seem to be too held up. But when it comes to government and change, uh, 
I should say the, the government leaders have changed quite often in the last 10 years yeah. as well. Yeah. So I do feel like it's a lot more dynamic than the previous country where I was living in Canada. Um, what, what are your thoughts on changes? Do you, do you see a lot of changes in that affect society, like rule changes, for example? Um, yeah, I sometimes think maybe there's uh, perhaps a tendency to change things just to change them. I don't know if it's partly to do with having a, a kind of a, a mainly two-party politic, uh, political scene where it's almost, you know, if you've been shouting loud about how the other party is doing it when they're in power, then when you come in, you almost have to change things. Um, uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think, you know, in actual fact, when people get together, no matter what spectra of policy they're in, they probably agree on 95 or 90% of things. It's just, you know, they've got the same objectives. They've just maybe got different things or different ways of getting there. And I sometimes think, oh, look, changing things just for the sake of them politically, I'm not sure it helps anyone. Um, certainly in, in the world of architecture and development and, you know, compliance, um, red tape, you know, legislation, building regulations. Oh, you can keep changing things. I'm not always sure it really makes things better. Mm. Um, but it's interesting. Like, a lot of people talk about, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but, you know, in terms of architecture, people go, oh, look at buildings in the old days. They were much better. They were more like this or more like that. Look at that. You know, when you go to Rome or when you go to Berlin, you know, look at the way they're built. Look at the style of them. I go, you are aware that architecture isn't a, it's not a free art like painting or sculpture or something like that. It is, whilst it may be considered an art form and there's an artistic side to it, it's very bound up in regulations and, um, you know, fire regulations, um, you know, escape distances, um, combustibility of materials and, you know, availability of materials and everything. And actually when you go back and look historically of different styles and different ways of building cities or buildings, you'll find that there's a reason why they were coherent at a certain time because those are the materials available and those were the fire regulations those, you know, were the economic drivers and those were the trends. So it's not like they just had a unique, better style at the time. It was just, you know, Georgian architecture was all about, you know, small openings because everything was built out of brick. And then you get to the next style. It's like, oh, it's slightly different because you brought in a new way of building something and there was a big fire. So now suddenly you had to have two stairs or whatever. And so it changed the way buildings were built. And I think it's really, you know, it's interesting now because things change very quickly and maybe that's one of the reasons why people think that cities nowadays are a bit of a mishmash because, you know, you don't get a long period of, you know, an established style. People Things change really quickly. That's um, that's really uh, brings back to, to light the fact that on the Gold Coast here, it's sort of a, it's a different real estate market than, say, some of the bigger cities and um, it's less <clears throat> less history, let's say. Yes. I see some photos from, maybe we can share some of those after, but uh, even 50, maybe 30 years ago or 50 years ago, we're talking about serious transformation. Yeah. Like, I was just on, uh, I was on a Facebook page the other day, actually. Um, it's called something like, Have You Seen the Old Gold Coast? And I'll promote it shamelessly. Um, there's thousands of pictures up there, all uploaded by users of, of the group. Um, and they are historic photos. But, you know, having moved here from London where you, you know, you think of historic photos or historic maps, you think about medieval times and, you know, a drawing of a man of a horse on Hampstead Heath and you see a manor house in the background go, oh, that's Kenwood House. Yeah, that was there in 1280 or whatever. Um, 
were here, like, just going on a Facebook page and just seeing there was a picture of, of, of Nobby Beach where I live. Um, and it, was, it wasn't 50 years old, that picture, and there was just no buildings. And so you get that very condensed timeline from bush to big city. And it's, it's such an interesting thing with the Gold Coast that it's, it's got that condensed timeline. So everyone who's lived here for any amount of time will have seen a huge amount of change. Um, I mean, I left the city for 20 years and came back. And in fact, I wouldn't say it was a city when I left. It was a town. Um, but it had changed a great deal in, in 20 years. And 20 years from now, it'll have changed a great deal again. Um, such an interesting place. Well, yeah, well, that's that's the interesting bit is having to, to live here and, and talk to people who have lived here. Like, what is it like to just remember those times where there's just transformation? I mean, even even the addition of a tram, like the public transit, yeah. that's sort of a, a city <clears throat> transformation to get public transit straight through. Yeah. Now, not that many people use it still, so that's the interesting well, bit. They, they've, they've got a lot more um, uptake than what they thought oh, okay. they were going to have in their feasibility studies. It's okay. been a roaring success in that sense. I, I think, I mean, I love it, but I find it interesting. It's I, hard to get anywhere other than along that spine, but, um, you know, one day will come where they'll, uh, they'll get more spurs on it. So just for the, for the people that are understanding the difference between maybe city, city planner and architect, is, uh, is there any overlap? Architect, can you just defi- define that for us? Yeah, I, I suppose there's, there's varying types of architects, actually. Um, when I studied, uh, I studied for about six years, and the first half of it was a general kind of architectural studies um, and the latter part for me was uh, specialising in, in what we named uh, urban transformation. So it was a mixture of maybe getting historic buildings or, you know, don't have to be old buildings, but any building which, you know, its lifetime was was up or, or its use was no longer there and you had to transform the building, restore the building, renovate the building or convert it into something new and then all the way scaling up to whole parts of cities that were undergoing major change. I'll take an example um, in Melbourne, the Docklands in Melbourne or, um, you know, any American, any North American city will have, you know, Docklands or rail yards or, or whatever that are no longer in use and that have been reinvented as condos or um, uh, recreational spaces or whatever, old semi-industrial areas that are no longer needed that were to change. And that that's sort of my, that was for a long time my focus in architecture was how um, building buildings is like, what bricks are in buildings, buildings are in cities. And I'm very interested in cities and and how they work, Um, how people behave in cities, how people reinvent themselves when they they get to a city. And a lot of young people might move from the countryside where their parents thought it would be a great place to bring them up, safe environment. They get to a certain age and they go, oh, I have ambitions, so I'm now going to move, I'm going to study. They suddenly live in a city and they find themselves going, wow, this is... This is different. Um, but, yeah, the, the Gold Coast is a very kind of condensed city like that. It's got a very short timeline um, and it's constantly reinventing itself. Um, I heard someone say recently, I um, thought it was quite interesting, he says, um, there's a tendency on the Gold Coast to kind of get here, you, you fall in love with it, and so you move here from whether it be from Melbourne or from Vancouver or from uh, Beijing, you fall in love with what it is and then you live here for a while and you start, and a lot of people start going, ah, oh, I liked it better how it was. And so 
But then other people are just arriving 10 years or 20 years later and going, oh, I love it now. I'm, I'm falling in love with this. This is what I like. And people go, oh, no, it was much better 20 years ago. And so it's this thing of, you know, your virgin when you've just moved here is someone else's old hag because they've been here for a long time. Uh, and I, like, being an architect, I'm kind of of a different opinion on that. I, I, I think the city is just getting better and better. Um, it's changing, but it's getting better and better. Um, and I know there was a, f a famous German architect from a, a long time ago who said, um, if you're an architect, you have to believe that tomorrow is better than yesterday. Otherwise, find, find something else to do. Ooh, okay, this is good stuff. Now, as an architect, you instigate change. Like, you can't get around that. That's what you do. You change a place. I think that that's really where some of these little nuggets are quite powerful because um, unless you've lived it, um, you don't really get exposure to it. So I think that's the, pay, the benefit of experience over the years. Um, is, is that, did you have some mentor that parlayed all this knowledge to you or how did you not, not get really. to where you are? Um, not really. I mean, I, I suppose when you study architecture, you end up looking up to certain architects maybe that you, you'll never get to meet. But, um, you know, you see their body of work and you read about them and, and um, you know, you, you grasp onto certain parts of that and go, ah, oh, that's that's what I'd like to do. But then I think as well, not just in architecture, but in most professions, you probably, as you as you build yourself and you build your skills and your knowledge, you you meet certain people along the way that might be from a different generation and you kind of, you know, you get a certain understanding from them and you learn from them and, you know, I think that's certainly the case with architects. I remember my professor in, uh, in architecture school used to say, um, I am an architect, but I don't build buildings. I build other architects. And, you know, that was that was his thing in life. He built architects. He was very good at it. Um, I don't think he ever built a building, but, um, yeah. And would he have had a touch point to reach people at a moment in their early career where they were deciding, like, where does that seed of knowledge hit someone that's going to take that up? Is it like high school or early days? Uh, or For me, I seem to remember deciding I want to be an architect at a very young age. I think it was um, it was either that or a writer um, or historian. I, I quite liked history. Uh, I still do like history. I think at one point I decided that, look, you can write. Uh, I like poetry and things. And I, I thought I, I figured out that, well, you can write that, you know, inspired by your life. Um, doesn't necessarily require you having studied you know, English literature or something like that for five years in, in university, at least from my perspective. And history is something that you can be interested in and you can pursue and you can, you know, you can learn about, you know, again on the side, whereas architectures maybe, unless you're just interested in looking at it, but if you want to actually do it, it does require quite a level of commitment and quite a level of training. Um, it's not an easy profession. And I actually... Going back, I actually looked at it and went, I wasn't a genius or anything, but I did fairly well at school. I was, you know, academic. I, I did fairly well with not a lot of effort. Um, got, you know, pretty top grades. But I found that there were certain things I found hard. And when I first started drifting towards architecture, I found, I go, that's actually really, really hard. And that was what drew me into it, just how hard it was. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember getting to architecture school and kind of, I think, about a week and I went, Wow. I really had no idea what this was or what I was getting into. 
but that intrigued me. And I, I really, the first three years in architect school, I really didn't do very well. Like I nearly flunked and had to do the first part again. Um, but I somehow scraped through, I think maybe on on attitude through this interview where they were going to determine whether I was going to fail and, and do it all again. Um, but I don't know, there was a turning point around that time I got the opportunity through my professor who was Turkish to go and live in Istanbul for a while and, uh, and do a project for uh, UNESCO World Heritage um, in an old part of Istanbul called Galata. Um, and I think that for me was a turning point. So that thing of leaving the comfort zone of my, you know, my university, my studies, my everyday, and going somewhere so radically different and kind of had to fend for myself and suddenly I found a different way of thinking about what it is an architect does because it was very much a kind of hearts and minds kind of project where we were, it was a very, very historic part of, you know, multi-layered part of Istanbul all the way back from, you know, kind of Greek settlement to Roman times to medieval architecture. Um, but the people that lived there didn't really care much for it. It was just an old part of town where, you know, you could just do whatever you wanted, but trying to get them to understand that actually they're living in a gold mine was such an eye-opener and I think that sort of focused me. And once I found my focus, I dare say I became pretty good at it. But it is something, you know, architecture is something that takes a very long time to get good at. Most of the really great architects are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s maybe. <laughs> so I've got a way to go. It's, um, it's definitely... Great to get you to just share it firsthand. Uh, again, it's one of those things like how many architects would somebody know in their life? If you just think of people across the globe, different countries, I would say it's a pretty small percentage. I mean, it's sort yeah. of there's a professional circle of, you know, doctor, lawyer, architects, definitely a title that's mm -hmm. out there. Um, and uh, I've just in your thoughts, is it a I've got sort of some bullet points listed. Is it creative, scientific, engineering, innovation? Um, is there some feel? All of the above. Okay. All of the above. It's really, and that's what that's what keeps me at it. It's it's different every day. I think the the main defining characteristic of architecture for me, at least when you work in a practice or a studio where you do project work. I mean, I guess some architects might work in a council where they're more organisational, maybe. Um, but for me, doing architectural projects. That's the defining thing. I do project work. And whether I'm an architect or an engineer or something else, I do project work and my life is about the project and the project is a very kind of slow-burning thing. You know, it's a long process. Um, other people come into work and they fulfil a role at their work and they do that and they do that every day and it's more or less the same and they're comfortable with that. I would wither up and die. I, I couldn't do it. For me... Project work is is an amazing thing, and I, I often I often say this. I look at my phone, and I'm trying to find a photo of something, and I flick through, and I see, you know, the you know the collages of all the photos on the iPhone. They're kind of um, changing. Oh, that was the time when I was doing that shopping center. That was the time when I was doing that high rise. That was the time when I was doing that house renovation. And in between all these photos of buildings are photos of my kids growing up, and I realise that ah. Oh, you know, my eldest is like two years old there and that's the first picture of that house or, or that building. Here's the picture of where that house is ending and my kid's now on his bike cycling. 
you know, these projects take a big chunk of your life. I've worked on projects that have been going for 10 years, you know, so you kind of, you know, that's the big difference for me from architecture to other professions. So if, if you're a dentist, you know, your longest project's probably, you know, putting braces on a teenager and tending to them for nine months or whatever. Um, I know you have clients that you might see for 20 years, but, um, yeah, architecture is different like that. It's a very, very, very unique look. I mean, it's a mix of your own personal experience, maybe perhaps a little bit of the Australian flavor of how things are done here, but ultimately um, hopefully people can take inspiration from you know, early days about maybe they're considering that career path or maybe it's just an appreciation of the profession. Mm. And uh, um, just throwing it out there, again, I mentioned that architect, I perceive it to be one of those titles that gets a lot of credibility on, you know, can you go to the bank and just get a loan, snap your fingers, or is it uh, I don't know about the bank. Well, I, like I, I remember one time being at a party, this was my younger days, I remember being at a party and uh, a girl asked me, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm an architect. She misheard me. She was very interested. She kept asking me questions. I didn't quite get the questions, but she was clearly very interested in, in me. And then later on I realised she thought I'd said I was an actor. <laughs> um, so there are things that are perceived to be above architects, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I, I get that. Like The perception of what an architect does or who an architect is, I think it's something that most people have an idea, but I actually think, being an architect and what you do as an architect is quite different from what most people perceive you to be doing. Um, you know, we talk about you know uh, Hollywood stereotypes, etc. And um, you, know, you know, there's not many great male, for some reason, always male actors um, that haven't at one po uh, point portrayed the architect. And I think they always find that in in a movie, if you've got to have you know it's a rom com or something like that. Um, you know, you, you pick Jude Law or something like that, and he's got to be he's got to be professional. He's got to have style because he's got to appeal to people, um, and he's got to be approachable and also lovable. And he's got to be a good person, an architect. That's the one. He's going to be an architect, this guy. And I don't know whether there's a certain love for architecture in the you know in the filmmaking world or or something, but you know, so many of them. What's the one um, with them? Um, is it Paul Newman or Robert Redford? I forget. The Towering Inferno, where the architect saves the day. Oh, is he? He's the hero. Yeah, and it, you know, it's like a seventies disaster movie. And Definitely. You know, the, the, the the tower goes up in flames, and the architect is essentially the guy who saves the day. I remember watching it. We did a in architecture school. I did a a course in high rise building, which now has come you know to help me living on the Gold Coast, where we have a few high rises. Um, but I remember this scene where the architect. He's in the basement or something. He's trying to stop this electrical fire and he runs into the basement. He opens up this electrical cabinet and he looks at it and he goes, these are not the wires that we specify the, uh, the engineer to use. This is why there's a problem with the fire and this is why it's spreading so fast. And all architecture students in this theatre, we all we were laughing. That's not what an architect does. An architect has no idea about that. We just do some big lines. It was first year architecture school, I think. We do big lines. We're artists. We, you know, we kind of live life. Unfortunately, no, the architect does have to know everything. Not everything about everything, but we have to know a little bit about everything. So, you know, you do have to know a little bit about wiring. You do have to know a little bit about, you know, bollards and traffic calming and a little bit about glazing and a little bit about energy efficiency and a little bit about everything. And you can't just ignore it because... It's got to get built. You know, if you don't know anything about it, you can't build it. Um, 
So it's quite an all-encompassing role. And I don't know whether that is, you know, kind of gregarious thing is what the Hollywood set like and why they like portraying architects. It, uh, if it works for you, I guess uh, take it and <laughs> until, uh, until the world changes. But it's, uh, I think it's been super helpful to, to really get a, deep, a little bit of a deep dive. And I guess if people have more questions, they can just pursue, pursue some of the things that maybe Nick touched on today and seek it out for yourself, what's maybe relevant in your country, what some of the trends, trends are. I feel like obviously there's a, an element of creativity, which I appreciate, um, and an, also an, an element of making your mark. I mean, obviously these are long-lasting projects that will live on and yeah. that will become the new history, right? What, are you, what you're doing now will hopefully be up for... You can't run it once it's built. You can't really run away from it. It's, it's there. Yeah, and that's, um, uh, you know, and there's, there's an element of... Uh, con- contributing and just making a mark. So I think that's uh, it's fantastic to to be involved in that. So thanks very much for sharing that story, Nick. No, thank you. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, guys, if you want to check back, we'll hopefully keep up with what Nick's up to. And over the years, we welcome him back anytime. So thank thanks, you very Nick. Much. All right, all the best. Hi everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Aussie Ambitions podcast. We appreciate your support and welcome your input. So if there is a topic that you would like to see covered. Please let us know via our website, aussieambitions.com, or any of our social media accounts. And please subscribe to receive all of our updates. We hope that you picked up some helpful tips helping you to get to where you want to go. And if you've got a story to tell and are able to come for a visit, definitely get in touch.